Welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel. I'm Ben Simon. I'm Jesse Spur. I'm Jess Stokes Parish, and you're listening to Simulcast. Connecting the healthcare simulation community. So welcome to our special holiday edition of the Simulcast Journal Club. I'm joined by Ben Simon and Jess Stokes Parish, and we're recording a bumper episode of Simulation Good Stuff. Thank you to the listeners who responded to our social media call for suggestions. You get some shout outs in the episode. Uh, But from those of us here at Simulcast, we wish you a happy and safe holiday season. And on to the episode. And Ben, you're going to kick us off, I believe, uh, telling us about some faculty development. That's right. So nominated by Deborah Nestel. So the article we're looking at is called It's Going to Change the Way We Train, Qualitative Evaluation of a Transformative Faculty Development Workshop. And it's by Carolyn Ong et al. and published in Perspectives in Medical Education. So this article is really a pretty deep dive into something that uh, something I think we sort of often neglect. So how faculty development for clinical educators actually works and what strategies and traits lead to meaningful improvements in educators. And I'd have to say whether you're a clinical educator or even someone just interested in meaningful organizational change, there are some real gems in this paper. So a key concept that is defined by the article early on and an important one to understand if you're reading it is transformative learning theory. So transformative learning is described as learning that challenges established perspectives, leading to new ways of being in the world. And for those of you who are familiar with debriefing concepts of frames and the idea of frames leading to actions and actions leading to result, you'll probably be pretty comfortable with how this theory sits uh, for us because it's kind of similar to that idea that changing someone's frame will alter their behaviors in the future. And the article explains how John, I'm going to mess up the pronunciation, but Mesereau's transformative learning theory breaks the process down into 10 steps, which depending on your perspective are either linear and compulsory or non-linear and optional. And for brevity, I won't go through all of those, uh, but essentially uh, there is a disorienting dilemma that leads to self-examination an unfreezing of previous concepts paired with critical reflection of this new perspective, and then eventually sort of integration, not just in your thinking, but also in experimenting and integrating these new ideas into practice. And once you've understood that concept, you can see how that a meaningful educational experience uh, would be one that stimulates the development of that transformation. So, for example, I can present to my fellow consultants on a new practice in pediatrics, but that teaching is pretty close to meaningless if it doesn't lead to actual practice change amongst my colleagues and they fall back on old patterns of behaviour. So the article articulates quite specifically... Well, yes, and I think in a faculty development sense, Mm. this was so interesting to me, this whole thing about the transformative learning theory, because I could argue that, in fact, as faculty development, you might have a disorienting dilemma when you discover that your colleagues don't change their practice just because you tell them they should. Mm. So I think this is really important concept for us because I think for many people in education, we don't get confronted with that disorientating dilemma. Agrees. Yeah, yeah. Discomfort sometimes is that stimulus. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And I think the article quite 
uh, articulates quite specifically and nicely early on that clinical educators in particular sort of frequently overvalue short, efficient modes of information delivery where we might lead to reflection and learning of concepts, but that we really tend to undervalue that um, measurement and appreciation for that leading to actual behavioral change or meaningful results in that context. So with this theory in mind, the authors created a whole day workshop entitled Optimizing Learning with Task Trainers, making specific design choices that were focused on giving participants those opportunities for transformative learning experiences. And they did this by mixing didactics with simulated teaching activities and deliberately designing the course to create those sorts of challenging dilemmas that trigger reflection and reinvention, as well as giving time for that process to occur. So there were essentially four courses with 24 multidisciplinary educators who all taught in their clinical workspace. Uh, They attended the course, hopefully learned something, but then volunteers were interviewed afterward between seven and 30 months down the track. And of the 17 people interviewed, they all certainly learned things. Most of them forgot things, uh, but 12 of them had integrated some of the strategies that they'd learned into clinical practice. And this is where things get pretty interesting. Now, I found it pretty impossible sitting in a cafe this morning to succinctly summarize all those findings because there is a lot of nuance and deep discussion in this article it's worth a read but my personal big take-homes were that one those who enacted change back home were more likely to have a community of practice focused on education in their service and that that community made them more likely to share experiment and implement their new strategies Uh, Secondly, that was that there was also an association between meaningful practice change and people's professional identity. So health professionals who saw themselves as mainly clinicians were less likely to embrace the language, humility and concepts needed to change their practice, while those comfortable juggling between those professional and educational identities were more likely to integrate it into their practice. And then thirdly, many of them actually remember the social activities really well. So the relationships that they developed on the day, uh, and while many of them forgot some of the workshop concepts, uh, they remembered that connection. Uh, and actually, additionally to that, requested more space repetition in their interviews, which I thought was interesting. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting to me, um, just hearing you talk about that, Ben, and this idea of the social learning and that community of practice and the scholarly activity that comes from that and just highlights how we're so motivated by others to kind of be that, I guess, catalyst or even cementing those learning activities Mm. and that perhaps there's something there about transformative learning actually occurs when with others that it doesn't necessarily happen when you're in silos. Yeah, I agree. And I think for me it's a real take-home. I still go to a lot of courses that have jam-packed transfer of knowledge because like if you look at a lot of exam prep courses for example there's this desperate drive to just fill me with knowledge Mm. tell me the answers tell me the specifics and we really tend to as learners and educators under budget that digestion time Mm. time to process connect with others and activate that social component of learning Mm. yeah i agree i think there's lots of content in this paper the other thing for people who are looking to enhance their skills in qualitative research methodology yet again thank you uh, professor nestel and team but there's a lovely description of the methods by which they did that uh, and how they explain how they use the transformative learning theory as their organizing framework but that they also did an analysis that allowed things like this community of practice to emerge so there's some good uh 
description of methodology and thematic analysis in there for people as well. Mm, agreed. Might hand it on. All right. Well, our next paper, Jess, Snow's Parish, take it away. Over to me. So um, the paper we're exploring next is titled Exploring Suspension of Disbelief Among Graduate and Undergraduate Nursing Students. Uh, this was published in 2019 in the journal for, here's the mouthful, an axel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> International Nursing Association for Clinical Simulation and Learning. So that's the Clinical Simulation in Nursing Journal. Uh, the authors were Virginia Muckler and Christine Thomas. And this was recommended by Phil Gurnett on Twitter. I think it's Runner Phil or something. Yes, his handle. he's been a great contributor. <laughs> yes, thanks, to Phil. All conversations <laughs> on about simulcast. Thank he you. has, and actually, I haven't read this paper before, mm. and it was a really interesting read. So, just to summarise, the study explored the concept of suspension of disbelief among graduate and undergraduate nursing students. They took a phenomenological approach. So, phenomenological. <laughs> I can never get it right. (laughs) Phenomenology is grounded in um, philosophy and it's quite constructivist in nature. So it's all about experience and how that experience influences our beliefs. Um, So our experience is typically influenced by individual perception and understanding of events, objects and phenomena. So just a bit of theory Mm -hmm, unpacking mm -hmm. there. Yep. Um, So the methodology that they chose for this phenomenological approach was semi-structured interviews and they had post-grad nurses who were enrolled in a doctorate of nursing practice. Not quite sure what the average of post-grad experience was. They were at least one year post-qualification. But most of them had been involved in more than eight simulations throughout their career. And then they also had undergrads who were in their third or fourth year and most had had less than six simulations in their training. Um, So what they sought to do was just get this idea of what even was suspension of disbelief and how did they achieve it, what impacted it. And for me, it was really nice to see an articulation of how frame of mind influences suspension of disbelief, which I thought was quite uh, a good way to think about it. So even how we're feeling, how our morning's been can influence how we engage with that simulation, which almost kind of comes back to Maslow's hierarchy and have we had our breakfast, water, and and have we had a nice conversation that morning? Mm-hmm. Um, there's lots of overlap with work around engagement and um, some of the things that I saw even in my research around glitching in simulations and that's something that's been seen in some Northern European work as well. So this idea of mismatch in scenario causing a glitch in mm. their suspension of disbelief. So you're going along with it all right and then something happens like the microphone exactly. doesn't work and then you go, hang on, it's not real. Yeah. And suddenly it jars you out of this whole engaged process. Um, There wasn't a great deal of discussion about things like fidelity, although it was mentioned, and we know how contentious the F word is, and it's normally something that I try to steer clear of. Um, And there was a little bit of discussion around realism and Diekman's theory of realism and, and all of that kind of thing, but I thought it was a bit of a missed opportunity to explore that a little bit more. Well, they called it environment, which I thought underestimated the breadth of what that was. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, Yeah. and that's what I I felt. um, There was a real opportunity to really think about what are some of the conceptual underpinnings and is it realism, is it engagement, how do these things interplay? Uh, Now, 
considering that there isn't really a great deal of explicit work around suspension of disbelief in the simulation, in the healthcare simulation community, but there is quite a lot of work in the gaming literature. Mm. And so they, the authors in this paper raised this idea of time and flow, and that's actually really well established as a component of engagement and suspension of disbelief in gaming. Mm-hmm. And so this concept of there has to be a flow within that simulated game to remain immersed and engaged. And so I thought um, perhaps there's a bit of an opportunity there for the simulation community to explore the suspension of disbelief a little bit more and learn from other fields, um, you know, that kind of cross-industry mm-hmm. look. And I thought it's probably something we should think about exploring a bit more deeply as a podcast. I think she's saying play more games. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I, I I agree with you. I think this is interesting. I mean, I've heard the term suspension of disbelief, but I even enjoyed their definition of that. Mm. The cognitive agreement the learner makes with themselves to overlook the unbelievable for the sake of learning. Yeah. So we see in the simulation literature, they often talk about that as the fiction contract. Mm. So there's a little bit of kind of overlap in terminology here, again, starting to muddy up the waters about what do we agree that we call things uh, and, you know, are we, heaven forbid, stepping into taxonomy territory once again. Yes, yes. But I think the fiction contract I always thought was between the facilitators and the learners, whereas I think this is saying that the suspension of disbelief is what you tell yourself. Mm. And so I think obviously they're related, but I also think... Well, I I thought, correct me if I'm wrong, that it comes from authorship originally and that if if you bought a book from an author, you are forming a contract with the author that you're going to believe what they have written in that story as real. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think I've definitely seen it in film literature, Mm -hmm. like fiction Mm -hmm. contracts, suspension of disbelief, really um, there's quite a lot in that space. Hmm. And, again, another thing of, okay, we might need to tap into these other fields because they're probably about 30 years ahead of us in in Mm. the concepts Mm. and ideas. Yeah, how interesting. Uh, I do think some of the terminology you see plenty of overlaps and I think this is another call for psychological safety because all that frame of mind thing to my mind is often wrapped up in many of the strategies that people talk about for trying to establish and maintain psychological safety. So I think it's congruent with that but it has some different nomenclature. Yeah, and I think um, I would actually argue that suspension of disbelief is a subset of engagement. So if somebody is able to suspend disbelief, then that's a proxy that they are actually engaged in the learning activity. So that would kind of be my argument, thinking of kind of what I've read and experienced. But, Mm -hmm. you know, our listeners might have a different idea and I'd be open to kind of hearing thoughts around that, especially the gaming side of things. I know we've got a few gaming listeners. Yeah. All right. Well, call out to them. All right, we're going to go on to my paper for the next one, and this is a paper from Simulation in Healthcare this year called Emotional Activation and Simulation, Measuring the Influence of Participant Roles and Scenario Design. And this is from Stephanie O'Regan and her team at the Sydney Clinical Skills Centre, and we know that this group has uh, written other things on observer roles and what people get out of it in terms of learning as observers versus uh, the so-called hot seat participants. Now, in this paper, they dive into some interesting concepts around emotional activation, and I think it's worth just sort of stepping off at that point because they do quite a nice discussion in the background about what we mean by emotional activation. I think a lot of us in SIM go, 
yes, well, one of the reasons that you learn a lot in SIM is because you feel really engaged and you feel something, you don't just think something. turns out it's a bit more complicated than that. (laughs) As always. Uh, Yes. And some of the constructs that are in there is stress and anxiety, but also pleasure and excitement. The concepts of threat appraisals, where clearly something's going to be hard, so that starts to look like a stressful event. But depending on whether you see yourself as being able to handle it or not, you might be excited by the challenge or scared by the threat. And so the question comes, how much emotional activation is good and what kind of emotional activation is good? It's not on a single uh, uh, spectrum. So they offer us up some hypotheses. That uh, The first one is that hands-on learners are more emotionally activated than observers in both pause and discuss sims as well as immersive sims. So they're testing both hands-on learners versus the observers and the pause and discuss versus so-called fully immersive. Their second hypothesis uh, was that hands-on learners were more emotionally activated post-scenario with no difference for observers. So how did they go about testing these hypotheses? They uh, were studying nurses and doctors doing deteriorating patient simulations. They were a little bit different. They had two cohorts um, looking at different kinds of scenario types. And then they used some scales, which uh, one of which I was a little bit aware of, but most of which I wasn't. And so they tried to get, I guess, a bit of a quantitative measure of some of these states of emotional activation. One was called the affect grid, one was the cognitive appraisal index, and one was the abbreviated state trait anxiety index. So essentially they used these as measures and did sort of pre and post measures of their participants. Big study, they did 520 scenarios. And uh, to summarise their results, Surprise, surprise, the hands-on participants did have more threat and anxiety and higher arousal, but in some ways they were also a little bit more excited. Uh, and there were small differences in the pause and discuss versus the immersive simulations, but probably not so much as for it to be a, hey, you should do this versus another thing. Uh, and I think some of the sort of take-homes here when they looked at that was there really is no perfect way of measuring or interpreting so-called emotional activation. That was my take-home because Mm. there was a lot of numbers in here and it didn't sort of come out that these were better emotionally activated than these others. Um, And I think I'm now even less sure about what to do about it. Mm. I don't think it tells me that I should take one scenario design or another and I don't think it necessarily tells me that uh, it's much better to be hands-on versus an observer. And I think the other thing that I didn't get out of this, and maybe I just didn't understand their stats enough, but everything was kind of measured as a measure of central tendency. So they used all these medians of mm-hmm. the groups. And I wonder how much spread there actually was. Were there some people who were really emotionally activated and some not so much? Because I actually suspect it's a bit hard to uh, dive into the individual experience when you're measuring a group. All that said, this is exactly the kind of um, deep dive work that we need to have to try and understand a little bit more than just, hey, it's stressful and that's good for us. Uh, so, I don't know, thoughts, either of you? Yeah, I did. So, I mean, I think for me the big take-home was that uh, we don't just generate emotion from our own experiences, but we are very much social mammals and we transact and feel the feelings of others when we're watching them as well and so i I love how stephanie reagan and her colleagues just continue to harness and assess that side effect Mm. of our sort of evolutionary design because i think i find it quite freeing actually to have to worry less about 
oh, God, what are the passive observers going to be doing when actually they're often feeling similar levels of activation mm. and uh, engaging in a meaningful learning process if we actually give them the right guidance. Yeah, and from just a little quick note from our stress exposure sims that we're mm. doing some research on at the moment, our registrars and nurses are wearing heart rate monitors and a lot of them get very stressed, uh, mm. at least measured by their heart rates uh, as they watch their colleagues. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I thought... Um, you know, kudos to them. Such a complex way of mm. kind of measuring it. There's a lot of time and effort in running over 500 sims. Um, the questions that I think I would be asking from my authenticity lens, as as I would, is around the actual scenarios themselves. And was it part of the detect training or the the, the kind of deterioration training that? people would already be familiar with. Mm. So is there something around that in the type of design of the sim itself that has influenced why there's not such a strong recommendation or, you know, is it just because they're going about their average daily mm. activity of work or is it that they're stuck in a room all day, that they're doing didactic teaching and then mm. these semi, um, like I, I feel that, you're going to have functional MRIs on all their heads before. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's and that's it. Like I think there's that challenge of how do you how do you work it out? Like um, how do you design a simulation that you know? When do we start looking too deep? Yeah, mm-hmm. I think is is that question of okay? So we want to know about engagement and we want to know about immersion and and anxiety or lack of, but how long is a piece of string? Yeah, exactly. Oh, well, interesting. Watch this space and thank you again to that team. All right. Well, uh, speaking of taking lessons from other industries, Ben. Yes. So I am looking forward to this one. So thank you very much to Deborah and Estelle for again suggesting this one because it is just the most audaciously ridiculous high concept idea for a paper and I just loved every minute of it. <laughs> so if you've ever sat down and just gone, what could an acute day surgery center learn from Heston Blumenthal's fat duck restaurant, then this is a paper for you. (laughs) So it's entitled, let me take care of you. What can healthcare learn from a high end restaurant to improve the patient experience? It's from the journal of communication and written by Terry Korkiakangas et al and published in 2021. And this was just such a delightful read for me. And I do wonder whether the team running it just occasionally pinched themselves during the study and went, I can't believe we get to do this. So in essence, the article explores this proposed centrality of the patient experience within healthcare. And it does a great breakdown of the myriad ways in which positive patient experiences can lead to better health outcomes, such as better compliance with any hypertensive strategies. For example, if you've had a good and meaningful conversation with your healthcare practitioner. But they also describe some of the drawbacks in the ways that we assess patient experience in healthcare. And the authors propose that there are lessons to be learned from other industries, which makes sense. Uh, and they provide examples from other types of industries that have formally adopted customer service training into their corporate models, such as Disney and things like that. And uh, basically, they ask us, you know, what could we learn from the food service industry? And in particular, sort of a finely curated heavily customer service focused type experience like going to uh, the Fat Dog in 2018. And so with that sort of high concept comes a very delightfully patient-centered study where the authors 
all spend a day making field notes at the fat duck, which sounds just horrible, and then uh, <laughs> in the day surgery department of a major trauma center. And then they follow the staff as they both support consumers through those real-life experiences and then designed a simulated experience where members of the public could experience a simulation of the welcome experience for both of those things, for both a simulated restaurant and a simulated day surgery center. And in each sim, staff from the real-life services played themselves for authenticity. And then there was a qualitative analysis of the themes that came up with people in their post-simulation discussions. But there was tragically no food in the sim. <laughs> Seems to be rich. That's strange. Doesn't, yeah. doesn't seem aligned with healthcare either. There's yeah. always food around. That's right. <laughs> You're talking about the hierarchy of needs, right? <laughs> uh, so what did they learn? Well, uh, they learned four big themes, which makes sense. So participants wanted to be informed but not bombarded with information. That they valued conversation over interrogation. Uh, they valued being met as a person. And they identified that the environment itself is a form of communication. Now, much of this might not be a huge surprise, but there's a lot of lovely detail in the thematic analysis and in the quotes about what these things meant for people. Mm. Uh, so, you know, hit consumers with too much information off the bat and your welcome speech can be seen as inauthentic and mm. prompt to out. Uh, people weren't great at recognising that repeatedly being asked their name and date of birth in a healthcare setting was a quality and safety intervention and they just kind of felt like nobody cared who they were. Uh, there was very clear appreciation when there was synchrony of verbal and nonverbal communication. So the simple things that we might take for granted, like shaking someone's hand, smiling authentically and sounding like you cared, were really interpreted as clear social signals of genuine interest in people as human beings. Uh, similarly, if your words sounded inauthentic or you didn't follow up conversation with proportional interest if you're making small talk, then this could be seen as script-based and actually a barrier to engagement. And there's also a really lovely breakdown of this concept of being met as a person, which was subdivided uh, into attunement, attentiveness, and personal touch. So attentiveness involved watching eye contact and getting a sense of whether someone's actually paying attention to you. Personal touch was about the contextualization of information and the way that that information was shared with the rest of the team. And attunement was about how sensitive to how participants might feel about the matters being discussed. And look, I love this study and I was also somewhat exasperated by it a little bit because I felt like, look, I came to love it again by the time they came to their <laughs> conclusions and acknowledged the limitations. But the thing that sort of frustrated me is it's not really a methods thing, but it just makes me jittery somewhat when we start drawing too many comparisons between a heavily corporate industry and a public healthcare system. Uh, because even just reading some of the participant comments, there was sort of this direct mm. line in the sand of our experience in a expensive restaurant should be the same mm. uh, as yeah. we would get when we're getting publicly funded surgery. And look, I think... Um, Remember Yanni Gietzema at DFTV18 mm -hmm. talking about how when we start referring to patients as customers, we also start changing the dynamics of our service. Mm -hmm. uh, patients have needs that we should attend to, but customers are always right. Uh, and so there was this sort of occasional moment where the consumer feedback just seemed like a pretty unreasonable ask for a public healthcare system or where the solutions proposed didn't actually seem viable. Mm. Yeah, I was having... Um like flashbacks of, you know, saying, this is not a five-star hotel. Um, 
in my nursing practice. Um, but but yeah, and like in the introduction, they they did talk a lot about um, you know the underlying stresses of the health workforce and the tensions between you know volume of work, lack of resources, understaffing, perpetual burnout, and so for me, a lot of those things kind of way into it that mm. if that's the service you want then you also have to fund it for that kind of service as well there's yeah. a bit of politics at play mm. there yeah and look I think they do make some important nods to the fundamental differences mm. between these industries mm. while at the same time trying to draw out what we maybe can learn mm. and maybe we all just need a little bit of a reset every now and again when we start to mm. feel a little bit cynical and uh, yeah that's right <laughs> and start blaming the patients for yeah, exactly. the work that mm. we have to do and, and so I think that's important I was just going to point out this is our form for Roger Nebone who's the uh, senior author on this paper he actually has a podcast and he's done a lot of work on learning from other uh, professions and and industries and businesses and one of the famous ones he did was with tailors and so he himself is a general practitioner and a surgeon um, but he's done a lot of work with tailors and how they attune to threads and mm-hmm. use their implements and those sorts of things as a comparison with surgery so if people are interested i will dig out the name of that podcast mm-hmm. and put it in the links to huh? the show because he talks with a lot of people about this kind of concept of really learning from other fields yeah and not too dissimilar to relational coordination stuff mm. and the airline industry and, it, you know, like there's many, mm. many things that we can learn from each other as long as we've got that realist hat on, I think, is the... Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like I did get a bit triggered when the participants started suggesting they wanted pre-reading about their surgical experience sent out as someone who's... <laughs> <laughs> we know they won't read yes, it. Yes, they won't read yeah, it. Yeah, isn't it like 80, 80 it's not actually people. a solution. <laughs> well, I mean, Ben, we didn't do our pre-reading before today. So. Exactly, oh. yes. Uh, yeah. Fortunately, some yeah. of us did. at the end of the day though i did think this article really acknowledges that dichotomy well and and that whilst it still brings forward this really wonderful message and that's that patients families and healthcare professionals all benefit when we take steps to humanize our healthcare Mm. that sounds like a good note to finish on Mm. all right well jess you're going to talk about human roles terminology Oh, this is a cracker of a paper. I thoroughly enjoyed reading it. And can I just give myself a pat on the back for selecting this paper? Well done. <laughs> well done. We shout out to Jess. Yes. Um, so this was published in 2020 in BMJ Stell and by um, Jill Sanko et al. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it set out to explore the terminology used to describe human roles in simulation. Now, what did they mean by human roles? Really, they were trying to explore terminology such as standardised patient or simulated participant, Uh, but they also kind of got in a bit of a pickle when they started looking into the literature. There was such a broad range of terms. In fact, there was, in their literature review before deploying the survey, there was over 16 terms used to talk about human roles and simulation. Now, we'll get to that, but I'll just talk quickly about the literature and the um, methodology they used. So they used a literature review to inform a survey that they developed and they deployed the survey electronically to get a sense of what's the global thoughts on this whole language. So they did well. They sent it to, they got 307 respondents. They were global respondents from across the world. However, they were predominantly US-based. So roughly 80% were US-based. So that probably is quite heavily influenced the results. Um, 
the majority of respondents were academics, so mm-hmm. almost 70%. So that also has probably really influenced it. And then the predominant profession was nursing. So 47% of the respondents were nurses. So most respondents were US nursing academics. It's probably the best summation mm-hmm. of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, The results, so much chaos and confusion, as Mm. the title suggested. Um, So as I mentioned, they found over 16 terms to talk about human roles in simulation, and there was a lot of overlap. Now, the listing of terms, the first one was actor, then they had confederate, embedded actor. When you read the paper, you can see all of them. There's a heap there. Mm. But there was a lot of overlap between even the use of, say, the word confederate versus simulated patient versus actor. Now, I don't know how you guys interpret the word confederate, but when I think of a confederate, I think of, say, you, Vic, playing the role of the doctor in the sim pre-planned. You've got to plant cues with the students Mm. or the learner, the participant. Yeah, to help the scenario move along. To help it move along. That's my interpretation of confederate. But um, what they found was a lot of people use the word confederate to talk about somebody playing the role of a family member. Right. And where I would have considered them to be a simulated participant. Oh, see, I would have also called them a confederate. Oh. Interesting. There, see, you go. Yeah. There you go. Um, Not very academic doctor view. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so anyway, so they they really felt that with so much confusion around the language that's obviously muddying the quality of our research in this area because we're all using different terms. And Mm. so how can we actually compare research across different things and that we really need to then be clear about what do we mean by the terms that we use? Um, And it's not just confusion for research. Of course, a lot of these terms become value-laden. That's right. And uh, certainly many people are reminding us now of what implications these might have and some of the ones that are missing there because this isn't new. It's not just simulation who has this. I mean, are we talking, referring to the people who receive care or who participate in their own care? Are they patients, consumers, clients? And I don't see simulated client in there. I don't see standardised consumer. And yet arguably those things now may well have a place as well if you were doing simulations at least in my country, in mental health, there would be a definite lack of willingness to talk about a standardised or simulated patient because that terminology has values that they don't like. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Fair enough. Another really interesting point that I had never thought of was um, the sticking point seemed to be about whether the SP, and I'll just say SP for like SP, everyone think what you think about SP, Um, whether the SP provided feedback or evaluation to the learner. Mm. So that seemed to be enough to make one think that they were a standardised participant or standardised patient versus a confederate or an actor because there was some educational value to the way that they were engaging, which just kind of blew my mind because I hadn't even, I just, I perceive SPs to be educators. Mm. They have an educational role Mm. in the simulation. Anyway, um, their conclusions were, that there's a great deal of confusion, we can't get consensus, um, and that that they really did thoughtfully explore the problems with variability. So the geographic differences, the professional differences, but they concluded that we should possibly use the Association for Standardised Patient Educators, that's ASPE with an E, that we should use that best practice guide 
to inform our practice, and they suggest the use of the term simulated participant, but with the caveat, but be careful because, uh, you know, yes. finding a word that no one can agree on is probably not the best idea. And based on their stuff, uh, a whole 19% of people thought that that was a yeah, good idea. There was just no, hardly consensus. Like, there was no consensus whatsoever. So mm. I, um, they, they concluded that, you know, look, there was a lot of chaos, a lot of inconsistency, a lot of variability, but that does have direct impact on the way we design our sims, the way we converse with each other. Uh, even our listeners, I'm sure, are going to be thinking of different things today yeah. when hearing this. And so they have put out a very strong suggestion that we really need to be thinking about that language a bit more clearly and hopefully find some sort of agreement Mm. so that we do have a level of, um, I guess, standardisation. Yeah. What do you think, Ben? Is that just academics wanting to have a scholarly conversation or do you think it has implicate? do you think it matters for people who are at the call face doing similar? No, I do think it matters and probably the challenge being it probably often doesn't matter for an individual service. Like mm. you, you get that microculture mm. and so I think that's how it sort of evolves that this just happens because it works for a subset of people who have their own rules. But then when it comes to our intersections and our ability to do research, I think is where mm. the big impact is. Yeah, and I mean just for, you know, interest, so I'm the simulated participant lead here at Bond and the the old language is standardised patient. And what's really interesting to me is when you engage um, the SPs in conversation and you say, look, I'm not really sure that that's the right language, they really hold to the old language mm-hmm. because that's my job title. And so they would. Um, but the, I think perhaps what's missing here is the voice of the simulated participant mm. and maybe they are the ones that should be guiding some of this practice a little bit more and what would they actually like to be called? What would they like to be called? Yeah. Because I, I have a problem with calling them actors because yeah. there's... And that term has got a, its own... It's got its own connotations. Mm. I don't, you know, want that drawing into... Anyway, We have to pay them a lot more. We, we do, yes. <laughs> if you're listening, sorry, guys. Um, but, yeah, it, does, it removes that educator element and that, that really important aspect of how they contribute to a valuable learning experience so how do we capture that in the language that we use yeah absolutely all right well i think uh, one thing you haven't mentioned yet was the word zeitgeist which came up in this uh there was a uh, there was a story which they only got to right at the end which was a bit of a shame which is about how english became the language of science and they called this the 1920 scientific community zeitgeist because up until then german french and english were about similar with still a few people talking latin when they were publishing in Mm -hmm. scientific journals but then it was really the two world wars and germany being obviously excluded and there were these two completely parallel scholarly discussions that were going on one in german and one in English and French. And then, of course, with the rise of America and and the Second World War, uh, English has become the dominant language, for better or worse. But I guess they were just making some... <laughs> some lines in Yeah, mm-hmm. just saying, look, there was sort of some chaos in the language and then there has been some benefits of having some uh, singular ones, although probably some downsides as well. Anyway, zeitgeist is always a good word to put in an article, <laughs> I think is the lesson there, Jess, and it's particularly good to uh, bring it up. All right, and the last article which I'm going to do is from the Scandinavian Journal of Trauma, Resuscitation and Emergency Medicine, and it's about non-technical skills, speaking of terminology that uh, might trigger some people. (laughs) Uh, 
We like doing that here. We seem to, yes, yes. And um, indebted to Beck Zabo from the Royal Women's Hospital down in Melbourne for nominating this paper. And the title of it is Examining Non-Technical Skills for Ad Hoc Resuscitation Teams, A Scoping Review and Taxonomy of Team-Related Concepts. And this is by Evans et al. and includes Lorelai Lingard as the final author. Uh, I'll say up front one of the great things and the reasons to look at this article is there's a beautiful graphical abstract which gives you the sort of overall scheme of things. And I think we're going to see more and more of that. A lot of journals are starting to say, give us your infographic as the take-home message, and there's a nice example of that here. So what's the background to this paper? Uh, There's no doubt that healthcare and healthcare educators and simulation educators have embraced the non-technical skills concept, whether you call them that or not. Uh, But... Their question, and which they ask, is do that? How do they actually impact resuscitation team performance? And what do we mean when we're talking about that? So they did a scoping review and tried to pull out articles that referred to these non-technical skills or a variety of other concepts that appeared to be embedded with those things. And so their scoping review consisted of sixty-one articles that they looked at, and of course they described their search strategy in there very um, effectively. And they did three things, which were terms new to me. Uh, they did a descriptive analysis, which is probably mostly what we think about when we do a scoping review, which is you read all the articles and you try and sort of get together what are the key messages that come out of it. But they also did a coherent analysis analysis and a citation network analysis. Mm-hmm. And as far as I can tell, what that means is they tried to see how well connected these papers were to each other. Were they citing each other? Did it seem like a conversation moved in one direction and then papers built on each other? Uh, so that they can see is are we making progress in this research or are multiple people just doing same studies and not really learning from each other? So what were their results? Uh, well, the papers looked at what kind of teams were they talking about and interestingly they described 62% of them as multidisciplinary teams and by that they meant different disciplines within medicine and 74% of the, the teams that were looked at in, were interprofessional And they looked at both interpersonal and what they call cognitive skills. And their findings, a bit like your last paper, Jess, uh, was that there was very inconsistent definitions of what non-technical skills meant and that there were parallel, disconnected scholarly conversations, particularly from clinical journals and the uh, so-called non-medical journals where people were publishing in like the Journal of Healthcare Communication or they Mm. were publishing in the Journal of Social Science, whereas some people were publishing in the Scandinavian Journal of uh, Resuscitation and Emergency Medicine or the British Journal of Anesthesia. Uh, and they discovered in particular, and there was a lot in this paper, so I'm just picking out the highlights, but one particular thing they said was that people had very different ideas about the concepts of situational awareness and shared mental models, and they go to some lengths to really describe those things. And I'm just going to find the little paragraph that I'm going to read out because I think it just summarises that so well. So I'm just going to quote from them here what they say about that. There's many, as I said, disconnected, parallel scholarly conversations uh, and that specific non-technical skills were inconsistently defined across domains, minimal cross-referencing both within and between these two domains, and it has what they describe as profound implications for what we know about non-technical skills for team resuscitations. Insights already obtained in one field are rediscovered in another. Uh, inconsistencies in terminology impede accumulative refinement of knowledge. And so I guess 
you can sort of see what the implications are. It's not just that people might mean different things, but also we fail to make progress. And so what they do as a result of that, and this is a pretty big and ambitious task for a paper, they say, well, instead of just pointing out the problem here, we're going to suggest a taxonomy that we think people should use. And it's quite long and it's clearly designed as a taxonomy for researchers to use. It's not something that I'm going to be taking into a debrief and say, here's my taxonomy of teamwork, uh, non-technical skills for you, nor do I think it's going to be a framework I would necessarily teach to either practitioners or even educators, but I can see the benefit if we are trying to, a bit like that previous paper, Jess, um, coalesce some fields and I'll just sort of pick out the topics. Won't surprise anyone in this taxonomy. It's leadership, communication, teamwork, but then some that might be a bit less obvious, briefing, resource management, and by that they kind of mean allocating tasks to teams and roles, stress, fatigue management, followership, debriefing, situational awareness, mental readiness, adaptive behaviours. So these are terms we know from our team worth literature, but in the paper they offer quite a detailed um, taxonomy of those topics and what they actually mean. So I, I do think, you know, again, take a sort of a deep breath. Where do we go from here? What do we take from here? I found a really interesting read because I'm into teams and teamwork, mm. and so it's nice to see how the different things are referred to. I think moving towards a better shared understanding, and I guess it's a reason and I put myself in this category to try and find richer, more diverse sources of reading because I'm sure I am biased towards reading both the clinical journals in my area and also the sim journals. And it occurs to me I don't read a lot of those other things that we saw nominated by people for this episode. Mm. Yeah, I think it's a, a problem that we all come up against. Um, it's very easy to become experts in our field and not look further. Uh, and it's also an issue of dissemination, I think, uh, around how well are papers being disseminated and how do we get them in front of the noses of the people that need to see them. Uh, sometimes it's like shouting into the void because you've got to compete for time of who's going to rank highest for reading. You know, Lorelei Lingard will go, absolutely, heck yes, I'll be reading that. Yep. Um, but if you're a little, you know, first-year PhD student that's starting out on this, then how do you how do you – for me it's about that dissemination and and getting more savvy with – and maybe having a little bit more responsibility about it mm. perhaps. And I think like you've highlighted the journals wanting infographics and things like that, mm. um, but how do you not get lost in the machine? Mm. I think importantly here you put a picture of a helicopter – in infographic and then that, with red hems yeah, yeah. And, and that's going to get you potentially you, they're going to look kindly on your infographic and maybe a bit cynical Ben <laughs> appropriately so but uh, yeah I think for me this uh, what I enjoy about this article is that it sure it was at a deeper level of sophistication in terms of that term terminology but I still think particularly the sim community in general takes a role of teaching people how to team mm. and continually role models a pretty unsophisticated level of knowledge mm. about those finer breakdown points and instead just recites that closely of communication and clear yeah. leadership thing. So I think even if you're not interested in uh, research per se, even just the tables alone are quite mm. a nice just mental delineation of even just in your own head getting that cognitive space between, well, what does um, 
you know what I've forgotten the term now. <laughs> the situational term, the, awareness. Yeah, what does yeah. situational yeah. awareness actually mean? Uh, when I throw that term around willy nilly all the time, as you should be more situationally aware, yeah. that's not actually helpful. Let's no. dive into what this means and how can we actually impact change. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Well, Ben, Jess, it's been a pleasure, of course. Uh, this is like the end of the year for the Simulcast Journal Club. It's been lovely. Uh, any little particular gratitude reflections, Ben, on the year or Jess? We got through it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the podcast or 2021? No, I was talking about the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I think for me it's about the community. Mm-hmm. It's always about the community. It's the the social connections, that opportunity to, and I think even coming back to that whole dissemination thing, like, you guys help me by finding things that are in your sphere that team training may not be my kind of major interest, but I hear about it because you're talking about it, Vic. And so I think for me it's that community aspect of, of belonging and, and sharing of knowledge and all those kind of nice things that make you feel warm and relaxed. Yeah. We're the microcosm of the team works on it. Yeah. yeah. That's right. Yeah, and I think in terms of gratitude, certainly gratitude to our listeners for continuing to mm-hmm. come along. It's been yeah. a lovely five years now, hasn't it? Um, and gratitude to you, Vic. I think this has been, again, a lovely year of meeting every month and getting to connect yeah. and keeping me uh, on my toes and making sure I'm still reading and very grateful for that. Yes, well, my pleasure, Ben. Right mm-hmm. back at you. How about you, Vic? Uh, yes, mm-hmm. no, I also have gratitude for team assembled here mm-hmm. uh, and for listeners and I think looking ahead keen to make the most of that because uh, I get a lot out of again having that deadline each month mm-hmm. of having to do the papers but I'm very pleased we've hopefully reached out as much as we can to those listeners and uh, we're keen to get input from them as well so mm-hmm. we keep on trying to do that mm-hmm. but in the meantime uh, thanks again simulcast listeners we're inspired by you and we'll keep at it Happy holidays. Absolutely. Happy holidays. All right. Very good. Thank you for listening to Simulcast. 